It is a great pleasure tonight to welcome to the program Seth Lehrer, who is, interestingly, the name means teacher. Yes, uh, it does. Though you took the H out. It, uh, it lost out. Uh, we lost the H at uh, Ellis Island. Is yeah, the way there I you go. It. Seth Lehrer is professor of English at uh, Stanford University and one of the great teachers at that university and in the country. And he is, do we call you a philologist or a historian of the English language or what? Well, you can call me a philologist because we know that word means a lover of language or lover mm -hmm. of words. And I've always grown up with that love of words. Tolkien was a philologist. To be sure. And uh, anything that can associate me with the great Tolkien, I'm happy to take. And the new book is titled Inventing English, A Portable History of the Language. Where does the language really begin? Well, anything that we think of as English is the vernacular in the British Isles. It's that group of Anglo-Saxon, Germanic-speaking peoples who, who show up in the 5th and the 6th centuries and settle or conquer, depending on your political perspective, in the uh, wake of the decline of the Roman Empire. And so by the 7th century, there is a Germanic vernacular being spoken and written in the British Isles that, for lack of a better term, we'll call English. And uh, we call that Old English. We English. call that Old English, yes. I started the program tonight just before you came into the studio with a little tease introduction in which I tried to do the first lines of the, uh, of, um, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer mm -hmm. in Old English. I probably did it wrong. I said, Fede ur thuthe orto neofnum saithainamagoholgid. You say it. Fede ur thuthe orto neofnum saithainamagoholgid. Uh, my pronunciation's a bit off. Well, uh, you know, I, uh, it depends on, on where you're coming from. And then we, we know that there were many regional varieties of mm -hmm. Old English. So I'm sure that if we were magically transported back into the Anglo-Saxon period, we would both be understandable, but they probably would think we came from different parts of the island. So by the 7th century, it's there. It's there. As the working That's tongue right. of the British Isles. That's right. And in uh, what's fascinating about England in the Anglo-Saxon period almost unique in Europe is that education is going on in the vernacular as well as in Latin. In Europe, it is Latin which is the primary vehicle of education. But in the Anglo-Saxon schools, students are being taught to read and write in English. So to be literate in the Anglo-Saxon period was to be literate in the vernacular. And that's the kind of thing that really generates the manuscripts and the evidence we have for the language. Well, what are the earliest manuscripts we've got? Well, we have uh, things like the Exeter book, the so-called Exeter book, the Beowulf manuscript, manuscripts that survive from about the year 900 to 1000. They contain poetry, homilies, religious texts, all kinds of things. Beowulf is the first great poem. It's really epic. In, it's an epic poem. That's in right. Quality. Uh, from it, I have uh, one sentence, which I remember from undergraduate days. That's beautiful. Does that sound right? That sounds wonderful. And what was wonderful about the way you recited it was you got the alliteration. Because, you know, as you and I'm sure yeah. many of your listeners know, early English poetry is alliterative. It doesn't rhyme. Yeah, that one but is it, B, 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 B. It, That's right. And so, you know, Vakamov uh, Mora, Grendel, Gungan, Goddess, Ira, Bear. You can hear the footsteps of the monster Grendel hmm. in the alliteration on those Gs. We don't know who wrote Beowulf, do we? No, it's completely anonymous is as far as we can likely tell. as uh, as is the Iliad probably the work of many wandering minstrels or wandering There's probably a lot before the poem gets written down. There are stories, there are lays, there are songs. But I think many people believe now that the poem as we have it 
is the work of a sustained individual writing roughly at the time of the manuscript about the year 1000, someone who was a Christian, but who was deeply aware of the earlier pre-Christian Germanic uh, traditions of poetry and myth. Now, would you favor us with a more extended reading from, say, Beowulf? I'd be delighted, and I have some favorite passages. Please. And one of my favorite passages from Beowulf is... Um, when uh, Grendel uh, shows up for the first Grendel's time. Grendel's the monster. Grendel's the monster, and Grendel is my favorite. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why Grendel is my favorite is he's really almost a tragic figure. And here is the description of Grendel. Was se grimme guest, Grendel hatten, mera merkstapa, se the morus hailed fen on fasten, fiffelkinis erd, one sele ware, wared at a wheeler, sith in him ship in forsgrief and hefte in canis kinna, thon a quelm yurek echadrichten, fast they he abel slog. Now, what's amazing <laughs> about this? The sounds are great. It's the sounds, but what's amazing is if you like the theology. Here's this creature out of pagan mythology who's given a Christian genealogy. He's one of Cain's kin. Well, you must you must translate now. Well, the grim show, spirit. For a few a few lines, show the actual. Was a grim guest. Was this grim spirit? Was this grim, grim guest? Was this grim ghost, Grendel Hatton? He was called Grendel. He was. Mera merkstapa se de morris hold. He held to the moors and he walked along the borderlands, the mark steps, and he held to the fen and fasten. See, the words are still the same. This mm -hmm. is all you have to get behind is the pronunciation. You see the old English words. And then it was the race of monsters, the fithilkin, the kin of the monsters, this one sailor where. Where means creature or man. And it shows up in modern English only in the word werewolf. Mm. And he was one sailor. It means he was without joy. What other words uh, in, our, in present and continued sure. use are uh, located in that early form of thing? Well, all of our little, if you like, monosyllabic words yeah. for parts of the body, nose, ear, uh, a toe, uh, 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 I, these are all mouth, these are all Old mm -hmm. English words, words for basic elements, iron, tin, gold, silver, words for belief, God, words for... God itself. God is an Old yeah. English word, good is an Old English word, sky, sea, uh, all of our little grammar words, if you like, the, and, and so on. As you listen to Old English, or as you try to read it, mm -hmm. um, could one also make associations or translations back to modern German. There are many comparisons. God is God. Sure, them. that's right. Or when you look at the way in which uh, the word uh, that I translated as called, Grendel Hatten, that's, you know, Heisen in modern German to be called. Uh -huh. Ich heiße Seth. Yes. My name is Seth. Uh -huh. Or Seli, meaning blessed, is in modern German Selig. So mm -hmm. there are cognates, there are words that share the roots with modern German. Of course, one thing we haven't said, we haven't gone far enough back. And just for a moment, let's make this very clear. All of these are Indo-European languages. That's right. And the Indo-European languages probably go back maybe 4,000 years to a group of nomadic peoples who were probably in uh, the modern-day shores of the Black Sea in that area. And they uh, had a language which scholars or philologists have reconstructed. And what's interesting is we can see the way in which many of these very, very old words survive in many different European languages, uh, but with changes in meaning. I mean, one of my favorites, if I can just share with you mm -hmm. and your audience, one of my favorite Indo-European little bits is that the verb kalypsane in modern Greek means to hide. Now, to stop hiding, to take away the thing hiding, is apocalypse. 
the revelation. Uh -huh. The goddess of hiding or of sorcery was Calypso. So you can see how once you have a little root, there's a kind of linguistic magic to these words. And now in the history of English, we come to a great event, 1066 and 1066, all that. the Norman Conquest. The thing to stress about the Norman Conquest is it's not as if all of a sudden overnight, all of these pike-toting Anglo-Saxons were eating champignon in a beurre blanc sauce. The fact is that the impact of Norman, Norman French took centuries to filter in changes in vocabulary mm -hmm. and grammar before Old English became Middle English. And it should, be, it should be stressed also, or at least revealed, that these Frenchmen who invaded, William the Conqueror and his uh, horde, were of course uh, actually Norsemen. They were the Normans. They were the Normans. Norman. That's right. And they, they were descendants of Vikings who had settled yeah. in the 8th and 9th century. And their the French Norman was different coast. from the French of Paris. Their French is different from the French of Paris, and you can see things. So, for example, uh, he's William the Conqueror. He's not Guillaume the Conqueror. Mm -hmm. uh, war uh, as opposed to guerre. Uh, uh, that is, you see these little changes, or, for example, uh, castle versus chateau. These are uh, the differences between Norman French and Central French. So, you know, the words in French that come in in English come in in different strata, some of them from the Normans, some of them later from Paris and from Central France. In the famous Bayeux Tapestry, mm -hmm. which shows uh, the Battle of Hastings, where the Normans defeated the French and killed the, the, the uh, defeated the English right. and killed King Harold. Exactly. Uh, we have a spear going through Harold's eye. Yes. As a matter of fact, though some argue that that was added later on. It's possible. That was done in by later. Political Weaver. propaganda yeah. is yeah. not a recent invention. But I, I love counterfactuals as a way of thinking about history. Mm -hmm. What if Harold hadn't been killed, and what if somehow the the battle had been turned, and the Norm, nor, and the Norman invaders had been defeated. We'd be speaking Dutch. Dutch, you say. Uh, my feeling is that the, the closest thing, historically, to Old English yeah. is Frisian and Dutch, and if the language had not been uh, changed irrevocably by the Norman conquest, it's quite possible that we would still be speaking Dutch. I, in many ways, I suppose the history of any given language is a history of prior conquest. It's a history of conquest. It's a history of colonialization. Yeah. It's a history of contacts. And, you know, language change is a funny thing because you can't predict it. You can't predict what human behavior is going to be and how political and social things are going to change. So even though languages may seem to change mm -hmm. on their own, there are always external factors pushing it. And my guest tonight is Seth Lehrer, who is a distinguished academic, uh, a major figure in the English department at Stanford University. Indeed, he's also the guy who the teaching company recorded some years ago for a total course. How many separate lectures are there? There were 36 lectures on the history of the language that the teaching company did. The very sort of thing that you've now done in this well, it's, book. Well, it, uh, those lectures begin before the book uh, uh -huh. starts, and they end after it finishes. It was a different kind of structure. And uh, what I've tried to do in the book is not reproduce those lectures, but really create for a kind of general readership a good sense of what I call an episodic epic of the English language, moments when English gets invented or reinvented. Now we come to the moment, we, we've already uh, referred to it, when a great new change is, uh, begins with the Norman invasion of England. That's right. And they become the ruling class, mm -hmm. they become the kings and, and the nobility. There's also an old Anglo-Saxon nobility which That's right. vies with them. But surely 
the language doesn't change overnight. Right. They don't wake up the next day and say, hey, now we're going to talk a Frenchified English. That's right. It takes a century or two. It takes, it takes at least a century, and, and in different parts of England it changes. And you can trace these changes, not just in manuscripts, but in names. One of my favorite names of a figure from the period after the conquest is a historian whose name was Oderic de Vitae. Now, you know from the Oderic is about as old English as you can get. Yeah. And de Vitae means that he was the son of a vittler, someone who provided mm -hmm. food. And so the father is French, or French-speaking, and the mm -hmm. mother is Anglo-Saxon. And so it's that kind of information that gives us a great deal of insight into the interrelationships between the Anglo-Saxons and the French. The hallmark figure who represents the high flowering of Frenchified English, the kind of English which leads to our English, of course, yes. is, of course, Geoffrey Chaucer. That's right. Who is a diplomat and a poet and uh, a general man about London That's and right. about Europe, mm -hmm. generally. And uh, I know he dies in 1400. At what age? It's probably about 60. About 60. And uh, the work of his that is best known is, of course, the Canterbury Tales, mm -hmm. which is a story about a bunch of pilgrims who are on the road going to Canterbury, uh, the holy blissful martyr for the sake to seek uh, blessings from uh, the uh, uh, the spirit of um, Thomas Becket. Thomas Becket. That's right. The murdered. The murdered. The martyred. And 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 yeah. I'm you know I'm so glad you quoted that line because what's so great about the Canterbury Tales and that passage in particular is the way Chaucer will juxtapose words of Old English origin yeah. and words of newer French origin. And so the holy blissful martyr fortuseca. Every word in that line is an Old English word except the word martyr, yeah. which is a new French word. And that's the $10 word. You know, well, we are, going to, we are going to examine it through the whole, uh, the first 15 or 16 lines of the Canterbury Tales prologue. Right. And I'm going to recite it. Okay. But, or, and you can correct my pronunciation as I go. Uh, One that April with your surest sota, the drochts of marsh have persed to the rota. And bothered every vein in switch liqueur of which vertu ungendered is the floor, and Zephyrus ek with his sweet breath in spirit hast in every halt and heath of the tondra crocus, and the young sonna hath in the ramir half a coursey runner, and smaller foulis mock and melodier that slafen all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him natur in your courageous, than long and folk to goon and pilgrimages, and palmeris. For to second strongest rundus, in ferny hallowis, cooth in sonry londus, and especially from every sheerest end of England, to counterbury they wender. The holy blissful martyr for to seca, but him hath holpen, one that they were seca. Well, Milt, that's an A+. How did I do, that was, that was wonderful. Is that good? It was the pronunciation, the emphasis, and, and the vigor with which you read the lines. I mean, it's clear it's you understand lovely. what's it's going on. It's lovely poetry. It's a beautiful poem, and as you read it, I hope your listeners could hear the way in which certain new French or Latinate words we'll point like them up engendred, inspired, inspire, engender, vertu, uh, the, the word zephyr from the Greek coming in from the Romance languages. You know what I think, though? You should do a full modern English translation of it. Right now? Right now. So people, uh, well, let me feed the lines and do the direct well, translation. Okay. That's fine. We'll do it together. One that operated with a short assort. Huh? When it happens that April with his sweet showers. The drops of Mersh have pierced to the rota. Pierces the drought of March right down to the root. You take it from there. And bathes every vein of every plant in such liquid from which power the flower is given birth, 
when also the west wind, Zephyrus, with his sweet breath, breathes into every wood and every space of heather the power of the tender crops, and the young sun has run half of its course through the sign of the ram, and little birds are making melody who have slept all the night with their eyes open because of nature. Sweater fowlers mocking melodia that sleepin all the nicht with open ear. Exactly, because nature has pricked them in their hearts, in their courages. These are, by the way, francophone birds now yeah. because they have courages. Then at this time, we're told people long to go on pilgrimages and professional pilgrims go off to seek strange shores, to distant places known in faraway lands, and especially here in England, from the end of every shire, they wend their way to Canterbury in order to seek the blessing of the holy blissful martyr who would help them when they were sick. And that's only the prologue. And, and the prologue that's only the on. first 18 lines. And then he goes on to do a Botticelli long before, rather, rather a... Uh, I don't mean about Boc- I mean, Boccaccio. Boccaccio, Boccaccio right. of course, long before Boccaccio did the Decameron. That is, each of the pilgrims tells a story. That's right. In fact, Chaucer learned it from Boccaccio, and it's possible that he even met Boccaccio when he had gone to Italy in the 1370s. Mm-hmm. So the same idea is there. What is the purpose of literature? Literature's job is to keep us instructed and entertained on the journey. Now, the language itself, as mm-hmm. we've just gone over the prologue, it sounds very... Charming. Yes. It has a wonderful liquid flow to it. Mm -hmm. Well, we've become accustomed as modern speakers of English to all of these European vowel sounds and to what we think of as the flow of vowels rather than the clash of consonants. And when we listen to Old English, what we hear is the clash of consonants. And it's many of those clusters of consonants that are so distinctive to the sound of Old English have disappeared by Chaucer's time and have changed. So for us, it sounds to use, if you like, a a French word more mellifluous, more honeyed. Yeah. I wonder how... It sounds French if you don't don't Mm -hmm. listen to the words too closely, but just listen to the the syllable and the flow and, and the melodious quality of it. Uh, but I wonder how it actually compares to modern French in terms of the general lilt. Well, I think that there's a, uh, I think there's a different set of accents and a different set of sounds. Yeah. The interesting question for me, too, is how it would have sounded to people who weren't from London, because this is in many ways London English. And one of the things that Chaucer is acutely aware of is regional dialect difference. You find that in the 14th century. You find that in the 14th century, and there's a wonderful contemporary of Chaucer's named John of Treviso, who is writing in London, so he's writing in Chaucer's mm-hmm. language, and he talks about how the people in the north of England, he says, especially at York, and I'm going to read this in Middle English, because it's almost, he said, the language of the Northumbrus, the language of the Northumbrians, is so sharp, slitting, frotting, and unsharp. It's so sharp, so slitting, so scratchy and unshapely that we southern men, may that langash uneth understanda, that we southern men may scarcely understand it. And he goes on and he says that some use strange, and his words are laughing, chittering, harrying, garrying, gris beating. So there's this wonderful sense that you've got that regional dialects are mutually incomprehensible and that it's very easy to use regional variation as a source of humor, but also philosophically as a source of speculation on, are these people really human? Are they really speaking a language? This is the Middle English equivalent of the barbarians. I was about to say that. Yes. Uh, It's the Greeks, I guess, 
who coined the word barbarians for all those strange people who speak a language that sounds like ba ba ba. That's right. That's right. It was the Persian. They thought yes, sounded ba 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 ba. And so, so what's very interesting about Chaucer and his time is the way in which he's really writing in a Middle English that's very much a synthesis of newer French terms, older Anglo-Saxon yeah. terms, and pronunciation and syntax from the London metropolis. But here's a great mystery, and though you address it in the book. Uh, that's the language, say, at 1400. Mm -hmm. uh, by 1550, 150 years later, yes. the language is tremendously changed, and it is really the language that we now speak. Well, this is the great vowel shift. Yeah. That we that we you know talk about it. That sounds as important as uh, and as mysterious as uh, the Great Revelation or the Big Bang or the Big Bang. We are drawing from, but hardly doing full justice, to his wonderful new book, Inventing English: A Portable History of the Language. I should say instantly that it's utterly readable and fascinating on every page. And it is published by Columbia University Press. It's their big trade book of the season, I imagine. Yes, and I've been doing many tours. And I just want to mention to your audience that um, on Wednesday night, I'm going to be at the bookstall at Chestnut Court in uh, Winnetka. And there will be a reading and a signing of the books. Mm -hmm. And I've done many of these. And um, it really, the book really speaks to a general readership. Well, we're all fascinated by language. Well, I think everybody Especially our own language. That's right. Yeah. And I think what uh, especially many people in America have come to recognize is the way in which language change and language policy has a history. One of the things I try and stress in the book is that the questions we are asking today, should there be an official language, should there be a standard English, should we write as we speak, that these are questions that have been asked really for a thousand years. Now, the question I posed a moment ago, and I return to it, is how did Chaucer's Frenchified English, which still sounds uh, a little alien, mm -hmm. and you can get the sense of it if it's read slowly, but it isn't our language yet. Right. How does it, in 150 years, become essentially the English that we now speak? Well, there's a major change in pronunciation, and we call that the Great Vowel Shift. And in a nutshell, that's a change in what we call the long vowels, that is A-E-I-O-U. And to sort of put it simply, we say A-E-I-O-U, and most European languages say A-A-E-O-U. And in Chaucer's age, it was A-A-E-O-U. And what happened was, over 150 years or so, the pronunciation changed, and no one's quite sure why, although there are some theories, so that the, if you like, standard or the prestige pronunciation of the vowels now was A-E-I-O-U. Well, can we see that with the Chaucerian material we just reviewed, the prologue? One that sure. April with your shortest sort of well, becomes what? That's right. April instead of April. Yeah. Or the way in which the word sweat becomes sweet or the way in which um, hath becomes heath. And so you can see that these, or the way in which the word do becomes do, or the way in which so becomes... Well, who decreed do. that the vowels had to shift that way? Well, nobody really decreed. And it's an interesting question. One of happen? the things that, one of the, one of the arguments about it that, that I sort of advance in the book, although it's not original with me, it's, a, it's an argument that some linguists are making is the following that for many, many years, French was a prestige language. That is, that what you had in England was not just the dialects of Middle English, but you had a language that the educated classes, that the rulers used, that was, if you like, the received or the standard prestige French form. is still a prestige language. It is, but it, di it starts to disappear in England in the 15th century. And so, if you like, something else has to replace French. 
And so instead of another language coming in, what replaces French is a certain kind of pronunciation of English. And so by the middle of the 16th century, what sort of sorts itself out among the teachers, among the scholars, among the diplomats, among the arbiters of language, if you like, mm -hmm. is a form of pronunciation that roughly corresponds to our own today. And so it's an issue of, if you like, the sociology. And does the vocabulary itself, and for that matter, does the, does the syntax also reorganized. Oh, things in, are changing in the too. modern direction. That's right. Things are changing remarkably. I mean, one of the major changes in vocabulary is that with um, exploration, with conquest, you have words coming in uh -huh. from all of the European languages, many non-European languages, words from Native American languages. The first words to come in from Native American languages are words like maize, meaning corn, mm -hmm. and canoe. And these are in the language by the early 17th century. By the way, something that we may have left out is that there's a, uh, there was an earlier linguistic base was set in the British Isles by the Romans who invaded and ruled for a while, long before the Germans came in. That's and right. we do have a good deal of uh, Latin built into the language we also, do. don't we? We do. And, and there's a question of how much of that is the legacy of Roman rule and how much of it is the legacy of later languages mm -hmm. as well, later contact. When Latin is the church That's language. That's right. Yeah. There's also Celtic. And let me say one of the fascinating sure. things about English is how little Celtic there is. Um, the word Thames is a Celtic word. And what's very interesting is that the Celtic word for river is Avon. And the reason, reason why there are three river Avons mm -hmm. in English, in England, is because the Avon, A-V-O-N, is just the Celtic word for river. So the river Avon is the river river. Yes, you can imagine the Romans pointing at something and saying, what is that? And they go Avon, and they say, oh, that's the river Avon, yeah. when in fact they're just being told it's a river. It's rather like uh, people speaking of the hoi polloi, not knowing that hoi, the hoi the. already means the. That's yeah. right. So there are these, if you like, strata of vocabulary, of syntax, of pronunciation changes. So that by the time we get to Shakespeare, we get to something that is recognizably our own English. And let us now hear some great Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And then talk about what he does. Because sure. here we've also got Shakespeare's Shakespeare is also a man who remade the language in some ways, don't in you? In many ways, he coined, seems to have coined more words. How many words did he put into the language? Well, the estimates are about 6,000, but what I think is that he, he coined a lot of these words just by putting the word un, or the prefix un, oh. in front of them, or using verbs as nouns. But he, was certainly ha he certainly had a level of linguistic invention unmatched by any other writer. Let's hear one of the great soliloquies. We go to Hamlet, a play not unknown to modern listeners. Uh, and... Here is, this is done by Laurence Olivier. Mm -hmm. This goes way back to his film of Hamlet, which was done, I think, towards the end or shortly, probably shortly after World War II. I think it's from the yeah, mid-40s. Mid-40s. Exactly yeah. uh, and in this one, uh, he's brooding about um, how um, his uncle might have killed his father <coughs> and how his mother married the uncle just a, a month or less mm -hmm. after the father's death. Um, and uh, how unresponsive or inactive he, Hamlet, has been when he should be doing something about all of this. And uh, the famous soliloquy begins with the line, oh, that this tutu's solid flesh should melt. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to it and then talk about what Shakespeare is doing and what is visible in the language. Okay. Oh, that this tutu's solid flesh would melt. Flaw and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. 
God. How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fiat, Arvai. It is an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this. Not two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. So loving to my mother that he might not suffer the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth, must I remember? Why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet within a month, let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month, or ere those shoes were old with which she followed my poor father's body, like Niobe, all tears. Why she, even she, Oh, God, a beast that once discourse of reason would have mourned longer. Married with my uncle. My father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within a month, she married. Oh, most wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. An amazing passage and, and one of the great performances of the 20th century. One of the things that I think you can hear is the way in which this is a soliloquy that's about repetition. God, God, or, you know, I was just taking notes. The way in which words are repeated over and over again. Uh, she, even she. Mm. The way in which this is a speech made up of lists of words. Weary, stale, flat, unprofitable. And unprofitable. And that's, you see, this is the Shakespearean trick, if you like, mm -hmm. is to take a set of short, monosyllabic words, very often of Old English origin, and cap them with a polysyllabic word, a long word of French or Latin origin. Weary, stale, flat, unprofitable. Unprofitable. Exactly. And this, <laughs> this, is the, this is the wonderful thing about, about this. The way in which you can also hear sort of popping up are the classical names. Hyperion to a satyr, or he says, um, I to Hercules, or she was like Niobe, all tears. Mm. And this is the legacy of the classical schooling. It's classical mythology. And, and one of the great things about this kind of passage is that it is also a passage of comparisons. How do we compare Hamlet's father to his uncle? How do we compare Hamlet, the son, to the father? How do we compare the English world we live in to the classical world of mythology? Mm. And so when Hamlet compares himself, he says, like I to Hercules. In a way, it's Shakespeare saying, can I compare myself to Homer and Virgil? 
another great comparison moment is in the scene where he confronts his mother. Exactly. And he talks about the two portraits. That's right. Of, of his uncle and of his father. That's right. And it, these are the legacies of the Renaissance schoolroom. Yeah. And so much of what Shakespeare is doing brilliantly is, in fact, just a higher version of what a schoolboy would be trained to do. Uh, course assignments or the question. The question would be to take a side in an argument. And so in the Renaissance schoolroom of Shakespeare's time, you would be given a uh, like a debating point, resolved, and you had to take the pro and you had to take the contra. Now, the other great soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. That is Hamlet debating with himself, resolved, to be or not to be. You can hear the teacher saying, that is the question. This is the assignment. And Hamlet is nothing if not a great schoolboy. Mm -hmm. He's just come back from school. So yes, you can hear all this in the speeches. He's been at um, Wittenberg. At Wittenberg. Mm -hmm. And his school friend Horatio. Exactly. Is and the thing that I would, And I want to stress to your listeners that in Shakespeare's English, Horatio would have been pronounced Horatio. And it is O-R-A-T-I. It is oration. Mm -hmm. He is the teacher of rhetoric. Now, that brings up another interesting point. I've read elsewhere and heard elsewhere that the actual pronunciation values used in Elizabethan England were rather different, and that this, what we just heard now, have done, as done on the stage at the, at the Globe, would have mm -hmm. sounded rather Irish. That was Irish brogue. That's right. And it is true that we can uh, uh, reconstruct the stage pronunciation with a reasonable degree of, of, of variation. And uh, one, for example, just off the top of my head, you know, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Reap in this petty pace from day to day. It's petty pace from day <laughs> to day. Doon to the last syllable of recorded time. How do we know that? We know that because there was a group of people named Ortho, they called themselves the Orthoapists. Yeah. There were a group of people in the 16th and 17th century, scholars, teachers, um, in fact influenced Isaac Newton, who was very interested in this, and they were very concerned with the correct pronunciation of English, and they developed their own phonetic alphabets. Uh -huh. And what also adorns many of the books that they published in the 16th and 17th centuries are pictures of the human mouth with the lips and the tongue in particular positions, and then underneath it, the sound represented by the letter. So with a fair degree of accuracy, we can really reconstruct some earlier English pronunciation of this time. So when does the received pronunciation, uh, which is modern uh, Oxonian speech or modern, uh, more or less, uh, English English, when does that well, there are, there are, you know, there are a lot of stages in it, but what we think of when we think of received pronunciation yeah. is I think we're really thinking of pre-World War II um, mm -hmm. London BBC English, where, uh, in fact, there was, a, uh, there was a guide to pronunciation that the BBC put out in the 1930s and 40s. And I think what's fascinating about mm -hmm. it is the way in which that kind of pronunciation seems to us and to contemporary people in Britain to be uh, very archaic. And some of your listeners may know about the phrase estuary English, which is the, which is the dialect now spoken by the young or by the, uh, by the sort of the rising middle class, mm -hmm. the language not of the, um, the universities or the court, but of the estuary, of the, of the mouth of the town. What does it sound like? 
What does it sound like? Oh, I wish I could do it, but I can tell you that if your listeners really want to hear what it sounds like, they should watch the television show Doctor Who because the mm -hmm. new sci-fi television show is so acutely and brilliantly sensitive to contemporary languages of all strata and uh, uh, Englishes of all strata and of all classes. There's this wonderful moment uh, where a new word entered my vocabulary. And in, um, in, uh, you know, I'm able to do this because, you know, this is research for me. And so I'm watching Doctor Who and I see the young woman, Rose, who's been taken over by an alien. And she looks in the mirror and she says, my God, I'm a chav. And the word chav is one of these words of estuary English, meaning basic, it's British for white trash. Mm -hmm. But I thought, a new word. And I immediately called and emailed my British friends and said, it's a new word. Yeah, I said, yes. And this is a very important moment in media history when the word has now become public. And this is an example of how words of popular or slang or argo all of a sudden get legitimation because the media is using them. And now everyone is using that word. There was a class um, conflict which kind of emerged. Uh, the, the angry young men, they were called. That's right, the John Osborne generation. The John Osborne That's bunch. Right. Uh, and I think part of what they did in, in drama was also to kind of um, push aside received pronunciation. That's right. And push aside all those postures of exactly. the upper class and to say uh, they cognified the language. That's right. Way. You see, this is the, the, the real question is, is language or is dialect, is it a mask or is it the truth? Mm. And I think what people in Britain in the 50s, and I think also in America, the Beats, and certainly uh, in the 60s, the revolt, if you like, against public eloquence, there was a belief that eloquence and pronunciation was a mask, and that if you were going to be real, if you're going to be sincere, you should speak in a regional dialect, you should speak in a class-based dialect, and perhaps even today, if you're going to be real and email, yeah. you email in ways that are ungrammatical. Eloquence is a key word mm -hmm. in this sort of inquiry. Eloquence refers not only to the way in which you pronounce the words, speak the speech, I pray you, yes. one way or another, on but it also has to do with the way in which you elaborate the language. Exactly. And we have simplified the language tremendously. We just don't have the vocabularistic richness and the syntactic uh, elaboration that was true in Shakespeare's time That's and beyond right. Shakespeare's time. One of the great figures, and he's also a, a very important person, as you as you say in the book, mm -hmm. in regularizing the language, is Samuel Johnson, exactly. who gave us the first dictionary. And also wrote a wonderfully rich, though to modern ears, I suppose, or to modernize, uh, two, uh, uh, two differentiated, two complex language. But it's a language I love. Oh, Johnson is a wonderful prose style. Uh, let's get a touch of Johnson in the night. Sure, Samuel Johnson, who was not the first dictionary maker, but in many ways codified the principles of modern lexicography and organized in so many ways the spelling, pronunciation, and definitions of words. The great thing about Johnson, too, as a dictionary maker is he sets out on his own. He's originally working as uh, under the patronage of Lord Chesterfield, mm -hmm. and by the time he comes up with the dictionary, um, he's rejected Chesterfield's patronage and feels badly well, hurt by him. Chesterfield has done very little for him. Very little for him, and uh, the, one of the most brilliant letters in the English language, February 7th, 1755. I'll just read a little bit of it. He says, is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help. The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labors, had it been early, had it been kind, but 
it has been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it, till I am solitary and cannot it, till I am known and do not want it. Now, you can just hear the cadences in yeah. this writing, the parallels, and the way in which Johnson is really presenting a central metaphor, which is, I'm at sea. Another great favorite in terms of style is um, uh, the author of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon. Gibbon, Gibbon is also a great prose stylist yeah. and a great historical prose stylist. And like Johnson, he's working with, how can I put it, he's trying to give you the cadences and the sounds of the classics in English. Something else happened. The, the great vowel shift happened to produce modern English. Then came the great syntax shift uh, in, at the literary level. That's right. The Hemingwayization of the language. Well, I don't know. Yeah, the Hemingwayization happens a little later, but you can see now... It's going towards simplicity. The sentences I just read from Johnson are long, they're periodic, and it requires a level of attention to understand what's being said. Certainly by the But there's the great delight when you... Exactly. Well, as you listen to it That's or read right. it. Yeah. There's great delight in it, and certainly you could say that at a certain point, maybe it's in the late 19th, maybe it's in the early 20th century, the delight is taken in simplicity and directness yeah. rather than in ornament and eloquence. Uses few words as necessary. Uses few words as necessary. All wrong, I think. Uh, well, but also uh, use the pointing words different. This. Well, the wonderful thing about Hemingway is you never know this river, that river. That's what Hemingway is all about. And we return to Seth Lehrer, professor of English at Stanford University and the author of a very delightful new book, a very uh, instructive new book, one that, that is bound to both delight and instruct uh, you when you uh, get your hands on it, titled Inventing English, A Portable History of the English Language. And portable indeed. Uh, so you can get your hands on it and carry it away. Yes, that's what I tried to do. You know, so many histories of that's English are, are these vast tomes, yeah. and I wanted to write something that, that people could take with them and, and really read as they would read a novel. Before we come to the moderns and to what's happening to the language, mm -hmm. I want to linger just a bit longer with the Augustan style, sure. which reached its peak, really, in the 18th century mm -hmm. in England. Uh, and here's a quotation from Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Ha this is where he lays out his great thesis about how Christianity is what really did Rome That's right. in. And he says, and I, well, after I read a bit of it, I want to get your reaction of course. to what he's doing stylistically. Mm -hmm. As the happiness of a future life is the great object of religion, we may hear without surprise or scandal that the introduction, or at least the abuse of Christianity, had some influence on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The clergy successfully preached the doctrines of patience and pusillanimity. That's a hard word to get around, get your tongue around. The active virtues of society were discouraged, and the last remains of the military spirit were buried in the cloister. A large portion of public and private wealth was consecrated to the specious demands of charity and devotion, and the soldiers' pay was lavished on the useless multitudes of both sexes, who could only plead the merits of abstinence and chastity. Faith, zeal, curiosity, and the more earthly passions of malice and ambition kindled the flame of theological discord. The church and even the state were distracted by religious factions whose conflicts were sometimes bloody and always implacable. The species of tyranny and the persecuted sects became the secret enemies of the country. And going to the end of the paragraph, um, religious precepts are easily obeyed, which indulge and sanctify the natural inclinations of their votaries. But the pure and genuine influence of Christianity may be traced in its beneficial, though imperfect, effects on the barbarian proselytes of the North. If the decline of the Roman Empire was hastened 
by the conversion of Constantine, his victorious religion broke the violence of the fall and mollified the ferocious temper of the conquerors. Well, that's a mouthful. That is, that's, a, that's a great passage. And what's so wonderful about it is the way it begins, begins with a maxim or an aphorism. Yeah. You know, it's a sort of absolute statement. It begins the way a novel of Jane Austen begins. You know, it is a truth universally acknowledged. And, and so much of 18th century yeah. writing... Johnson's essays almost always begin that way. That's also. exactly... This, yeah. is, this is the key yeah. to, if you like, the logic of, of the 18th yeah. century essay, of 18th century prose, is the assertion... Of, uh, of a maxim or an axiom, followed by the supporting evidence. What's so wonderful, too, I mean, patience and pusillanimity. I mean, a wonderful word. I haven't looked it up. I'm wondering if it's Gibbon's coinage. I don't know, but it's well, certainly... Well, we know the word pusillanimous. But pusillanimity... That's why is, I have trouble that's, with it, yeah. that's a hard one, and I think that it's getting your mouth around a word like mm -hmm. that, that sort of mimes getting your mind around what Gibbon's trying to tell you, which is that, you know, the, the sort of the fundamental paradox. Did Christianity bring the Roman Empire to an end? You know, when I think into the 19th century, mm -hmm. one figure who comes to mind as quite different from Gibbon, but just as interested in, just as authoritative about history, is Carlyle. Exactly. He's writing uh, far more declarative, that's strong, right. vigorous lines. I it? think that's what one of the things that happens, I believe, is the change in the journalistic readership in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and the way in which there is a different audience that generates uh, the need for declarative, shorter lines. When you look at Carlyle's contemporary Dickens, you're looking at somebody who began as a court reporter, mm. and by the uh, 1850s, 1860s, the telegraph has certainly mm. changed the way in which people expect the reporting of war and the reporting of news to come through. And I think that has a big effect. Now, much happened to the English language in England and in the British Isles sure. in the 19th century. But, jump the pond, and you have a chapter on Mark Twain yes. as a central figure in the remaking of American English. See, I think Twain, uh, unlike Shakespeare, Twain didn't so much coin words as he took a variety of terms from popular culture mm. and he brought them into, if you like, high literary culture. He brought them into his novels and into his essays and into the public. And what I think, you know, Twain's accomplishment is, is to be sensitive to regional variation and to recognize, too, that there are certain words of such evocative power that they conjure up a whole history. Now, I spend my time with the words dude and hello, which are two of my favorites because they've become sort of markers of our own linguistic consequences. Well, hello is the consequence of the introduction of the telephone. That's right. This is the question. When you have somebody on the other end of the line, you, do, you need a neutral term. And Edison was the one who came up with hello. Alexander Graham Bell, you know, to the end of his life in 1922, answered the phone by saying, ahoy there, you know, like he was on a boat. <laughs> So what, what Twain is doing, writing in Connecticut Yankee in the 1880s, is he's taking this word hello and he's using it to literally and figuratively electrify the Arthurian world. Similarly, a word like dude, which comes up in the 1870s and 80s. He, you know, he has Hank Morgan talk about King Arthur's Knights as iron dudes. And so there's a wonderful sense in which he's taking these words from technology, from theater, and from popular well, journalism. Dude has been recovered, uh, or, uh, 
recirculated. In Dude has had a second. Oh yes, Dude yeah. is as definite. Dude's had many lives. Yeah. In fact, uh, what in is its origin? What is its origin? Nobody knows what the origin is. Uh, if you look it up in the OED, it says it's a term that probably originated in the United States. If you look it up in an American dictionary, it says it was a term that probably originated in England. Uh -huh. Nobody wants to take credit for its origin, but it's probably uh, it's probably comes from something like duds, you know, fancy dress. And uh, certainly by, I mean, there's a wonderful bit in um, uh, Edmund Morgan's uh, Life of Theodore Roosevelt, where he talks about the young Theodore Roosevelt coming into uh, the State Assembly in New York in the early 1880s, his very first elected position. And he walks in and so, somebody turns to somebody else and says, who's the dude? So mm -hmm. there's this wonderful moment there where you can hear something very contemporary, but also very much of its own time. That's exactly what Twain is picking up on. Now there's the great question of accent, of regional variation yes. in the pronunciation of the language, as well as in vocabularistic differentiation. Because mm -hmm. there are some vocabularies that are essentially local in origin and sometimes only local in, in use. Right. Uh, f putting England aside, and England is carved into many, many separate uh, mm -hmm. uh, accents, dialects. Right. Sometimes it's kind of hard to under for a a Londoner to understand a Scotsman. Sure, that's right. Oh. Well, certainly in America, one of the interesting things is the way in which regional dialects sort of grow out of the original settlement points. Mm -hmm. Boston, New London, New York, uh, the Carolina coast, uh, and the way in which individuals mm -hmm. from different parts of England brought their regional dialects to the, to the Americas. I will now reveal that you and I come from the same part of this country. I think that's from right. From the borough of Brooklyn yes, in New York. Yes, that's true. And you say of yourself, that your mother, a speech teacher, sort of worked you out of the Brooklyn. She bled it out of us. That's right. And but can you talk in that way if you if you need to? Well, I, 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 there are times when I am tired or irritated, yeah. or when I'm making an argument and I will be in a class and I'll talk about you know like give a dog a bone, and the students will go, what did he just like as well, if, if I'm I had gonna, spoken in another language? I'm going to talk in that style right now. You do and, that. And th that this is the way you talk. And this is what the language really is and how it should be pronounced. Well, there's a, Runyon there's a Runyon-esque quality to that. I mean, let me say two things about that. First of all, the the regional dialect that we think of as, you know, sort of mm -hmm. classic Damon Runyon or Life of Riley Brooklyn mm -hmm. has a lot of Irishisms from the 19th century in it. Uh, it has a lot of Germanisms. It has a lot of Yiddishisms mm -hmm. in it. But it also but it has it has vowel values. It has vowel so. values that are different, yeah. and you know the the sort of the oid vowel, vowels and the er the. It's not oid. It's oid. Oid. That's uh, right. Oid. I live on tidy tide. Well, toidy you know, toid. I had an uncle who loved blue pern oysters, and oysters, uh, of course. Yeah. That was the flip side of it. Blue pern. Blue pern. Green pern. Blue point. Yeah. But what I like too is the way in which in literature, especially in someone like Damon Runyon. Yeah. You can hear the New York inflection. I want to read a little bit about uh, a little read a little bit from Pick the Winner. Oh, do by from all means. Damon Runyon. Well, anyway, when Hot House Hobie and his ever-loving fiance come to Mindy's, he gives me a large hello, and so does Miss Cutie Singleton. So I hello them right back, and Hot House Hobie speaks to me as follows. Now, what's great about this is again, go back to hello. Yeah. Not just he says hello to me, he gives me a large hello, so I hello them. It's not a, you know, and the, the thing that's also characteristic of this language is what, if you like, hyper-correctness. Mm -hmm. That is, an attempt to sound highfalutin. So instead of saying a big hello, it's a large hello. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, what, that's what I think Runyon captures, is that flavor of uh, theatrical self-mockery in a lot of American regional English. But where do you, how do you account for the sound value differences? For example, 
um, well, the, the tidy tide or, mm -hmm. or the bite in the, in the tree right. uh, is heard not only in New York and New Jersey, right. but is heard down along the Virginia coast. That's right. And also somehow, I think, in around Louisiana. One of the things that is a sort of truism of the history of the English language, if you want to get technical about yeah. it, is the instability of vowels when they're near the consonant R. Ah. And throughout English regional dialects and American regional dialects, one of the great markers is what happens to a vowel before an R. Why would the R tend to unsettle the vowel? Because the, the, to get your mouth into the position to make the R, yeah. the constriction of the mouth, the constriction of the tongue, has a profound effect on the vowel sound that's coming before it. And this, for your listeners' benefits, is called rhoticization. That is, that's the influence of an R on a preceding vowel. Illustrate. Well, for example, in, um, in British English, uh, the British will say very often Clark instead of clerk, mm -hmm. Hartford, Barclay, and these are the sounds that sorted themselves out, whereas the regional dialect in England that was brought to America pronounced it er, clerk, Berkeley. Um, uh, Hertford instead Regional of from England. Well, what region? Exactly. Then? Well, it's East Anglia to some extent, uh -huh. and it also has to do with the time that's different. For example, it's true that in um, in England you could say uh, university, or you could say university, and the word varsity and v university are really from the same word. Mm -hmm. It's just that one is pronounced differently from the other. Another good example would be, for example, the word vermin which settled itself out in standard British English as vermin, but in regional dialects that came to America that were eventually part of the American regional community, vermin became varmin and became mm. varmints. Varmint. So varmint and vermin are really the same mm. word. So these are historical examples of how different regional dialects pronounce their vowels differently before an R, and how the separation of those dialects can give rise not just mm. to different pronunciations, but completely different words. Uh, large uh, regional difference, America. Southern speech as right. compared to northern. Uh, southern speech is also more mellifluous. Uh, you don't get, uh, the R is very often not pronounced. That's right. Uh, how did that come to be? Again, this is a difference of regional variation from England, and it's also uh, the way in which certain forms of educated speech marked the belief that you know your pronunciation was correct. Noah Webster, in his Dictionary of 1828, is codifying a certain kind of New England pronunciation that's very, very clear. And in certain areas of the South, there's a much more archaic kind of speech. We're going I mean, far away. Far away. You could even argue that at the level of grammar, Southern regional English, Southern American English, preserves a second person plural. We don't have a second person. It's you mm -hmm. or you. Um, all other, you all. Y'all. Yeah. And that's, that's a grammatical yeah. form. Or the other thing that's wonderful is the way in which th there were two classes of verbs way back when. Strong verbs and weak verbs. Mm -hmm. Now, strong verbs are verbs that signal change in tense by changing the root vowel. Run, ran, think, thought. Weak verbs just put a suffix. Walk, walked, talk, talked. Now, these strong verbs are characteristic of earlier forms 
of British English. And some of these earlier forms survive in pockets of regional pronunciation. And I'm told that there's a great moment in sports broadcasting history when I think it's Dizzy Dean is broadcasting slud. and slud into third. <laughs> yes. And that is a strong, slid, slad, slud. It is not a pronunciation issue, it's a grammar yeah. issue. Yeah. So he's using an old, strong verb. <laughs> But it, ha it hasn't taken hold. It hasn't taken hold. It should have. Although I do think that we have taken a particular verb that we can't say on the radio, mm -hmm. uh, which is a weak verb, and we've turned it into a strong verb to say that in the past tense, he shat. And I think that this is an example of taking a weak verb mm -hmm. and making a strong verb out of it for purposes of euphemism. Uh, some other little nuggets of discovery in mm -hmm. your book. I'll let you choose. Oh, Nuggets, what are the things that I've discovered in this book? One of the things that I got a great deal out of was researching African-American English and uh -huh. getting a real sense of the variety and the polyvalence of African-American English, and in particular, sort of, if you like, the double side of African-American English, the tradition of pulpit oratory, the debts to Shakespeare, uh, the profound debt to the King James Bible, the way in which... Mm. Um, for example, Frederick Douglass can write, but also the other side of it, the songs and the language of the slave, uh, jazz, hip-hop, the African traditions that, that come in in the 19th When you say public oratory, what comes instantly to mind is Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Exactly. I have a dream tonight. Today. That's right. So. And, and I spend some time with King and with I have a dream, and there's a great sense yeah. of this almost Shakespearean power yeah. to this. There's a great sense, too, to the way in which, um, you, you know, when you read King through and against um, a, a writer like um, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. You see the great uh, pulpit orator mm. there. And you see, for example, King saying, um, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. And King quotes that hymn, and in his mouth it just becomes different. And so one of the discoveries I, I felt that I came to was not just the sort of the high side of African-American mm -hmm. literature, but the popular side, so that even when you listen to someone like Tupac Shakur, and he has a line like, straight to the depths of hell is where those cowards are going, it has a biblical flavor to it. Mm -hmm. It has a sense that he's speaking from the pulpit now. And I think that there's a real self-consciousness about this in the African-American tradition. So this was one of the exciting, if you like, discoveries, but also a sense of putting African-American English in the arc of the history of the English Are you at all world. bothered by the, when it comes to just general youth speak in this country these days, by the thinness of the vocabulary? Well, I think it's a relative thing. I mean, I think that it is true that the vocabulary in everyday speech may be smaller, and certainly in writing it's smaller. But my son, who's 15, comes home every day with a new word, with a local coinage, mm. or with a term they've made up. And so I still think that there's a lot of word play. I think there's a lot of invention going on on the playground or the schoolyard. Um, it may not seem like they're using a rich traditional vocabulary, but they're communicating as effectively as they ever did. My hackles still rise when I hear young people walking along and one says to the other, uh, I'm like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, I thought I told you. That's right. Uh, that's, I'm like, instead of I said. That's right. Well, this is, uh, the, you know, the use of the, uh, of, of the like or of what I think linguists call the, the quotative, you know, yeah. uh, that is using a word like that to mark 
the experience. Have you also heard it reduced where they take the like out? I'm, what do you mean by that? Yes. She's, mm -hmm. it's as well, if it's a place here. The other one I like is so, show. that is so four days ago. That is the way yeah, in which, the way in which um, speech is developing certain markers um, to do with words. It doesn't bother you as much as it does me because you are a philologist and well, I'm you excited argue that by it. usage is uh, the source of all language. I know that if I spoke like that, I'd be thrown out of the house or yeah. my students would laugh at me. But, yeah. but uh, you know, uh, I feel, for example, you know, hot and cool, uh, up and down, uh, you know, I'm up on this, I'm down with that, yeah, yeah. you know, those kinds of things are part of the richness and diversity of language. At this point, I won't master. So I'll still speak the way I speak. You can still talk Professor Eve. I can still talk in a prof professorial way, right. yes. And my guest for the evening is, uh, and continues to be for the next 25 minutes, Seth Lehrer, author of the new book, Inventing English, A Portable History of the English Language. This utterly readable and really quite fascinating new book is published by Columbia University Press. We go directly to the phones. Here is the first caller. Good evening. Oh, hello. Yes, good evening. Uh, my question is, uh, is this, uh, 25 or 30 years ago, there was a PBS show on uh, the story of English with, uh, uh, I think, Robert McNeil, and he talked about, he, I think he used the term language fossils, that there were places in America or England that were so remote and so removed from uh, mainstream communication that you could still hear some of the, the inflections of many centuries ago. And one one that he identified was Tangier Island on Chesapeake Bay, which had very, very remote and isolated. And for example, when they say, if you want to say something is pretty, they would say, it ain't ugly none. And you could hear some of the vowel sounds too. And I wondered if there was any place like that now left 30 years later after that series. Well, that's a great question. And I vividly remember that show and I remember that episode. And I think it's probably fair to say that there are a few places. Um, I don't want to create the impression that um, people are, in some sense, speaking fossils. You know, I, I think it is true that there are areas where the uh, pronunciation more accurately reflects the historical past of the original settlement. It is true, uh, one of the great areas that linguists have worked on is the Piedmont area in uh, Virginia and North Carolina, where you can hear certain sounds, for example, uh, a word like um, uh, uh, join, J-O-I-N, will rime with the word line, L-I-N-E. And uh, the poet Alexander Pope would rhyme those two words in the early 18th century. So you could argue that there are elements of early 18th century English that are being preserved in certain regional areas. And the interesting question is going to be, will the media, uh, will television, will the internet, mm -hmm. will popular culture efface those older historical pronunciations? And that I don't know, but it's a great question. And mm -hmm. thanks for bringing that up. Okay, sure. You know, is, is ain't, is ain't all, has ain't always been non-acceptable or unacceptable? Well, if you're a reader of the novels of Dorothy Sayers or know the Peter Whimsey stories, you'll know that in the 19-teens and 20s, it was a social affectation of the very rich and upper class to use ain't. So there was a time when ain't was, uh, uh, was the way it was. Sir, we thank, thank you for you. the call. Glad to have heard from you. You're directly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have a simple question, but it's something I'm very curious about. In recent years, more often than not, I'm hearing the word often pronounced often with the T. And I don't know if there's a change going on with that. I'm just real curious. I don't hear people saying often 
as much as I used to. Well, that really cuts close to my heart or close to my own memory. I lived in New York and uh, spent all my time there until I went west to graduate school. And um, at the University of Wisconsin, where I did a master's degree before I went on to, for, for a doctorate elsewhere, uh, I was called upon uh, to give a speech in some graduate course, or to give a presentation, I should say. And when it was all over, two other students pulled me aside and said, you know, you talk, uh, uh, you mispronounce a word. I said, what word? The word often. You say often. You're not supposed to pronounce the T. And of course, as a New Yorker, I think it was routine for me to pronounce well, the T. I have exactly the opposite story, and I'm glad you brought this up, because one of my vivid memories is I'm in second grade yeah. in, the, in the Brooklyn School, uh, PS 199, and we're doing a section on homonyms, that is, words that you know, are pronounced the same. But yeah. And I, I raised my hand and I said, I have a set of homonyms, often and often. And the teacher said, what do you mean? I said, you know, little often Annie, and often we go to the store. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and at that point, she said, it's pronounced often. Yeah. So I think there was a sense. Oh, so my often wasn't street language. It was it was, it, it was conveyed to me at PS 205. Uh, and I was at PS 199. Yeah. So you had six on me on that one. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, what do you say now? Well, I think that... Um, I think it's. Be- I think the belief is that the standard pronunciation should be often. Yeah. Oh. Stick to your often, man. Okay. Thank you for the call. I'll be tough to, to change that one. <laughs> Thank All right. you. Good night, and directly to another on five nine one, seventy two hundred. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. Um, I uh, have a question about uh, recording technology, which is you know just a little over a hundred years old, but it's something that's so new compared to the evolution of language. Do you, what kind of effect do you think that's going to have on the evolution of language in the next millennium, uh, thinking that people in the year 2525 will be able to listen to this conversation we're having now compared to, I mean, before uh, a person's way of speech would die with them. Uh, now you can listen to people long dead. Do you think that's going to have a big effect on the evolution of language? I think that's a good point. I mean, one of the interesting questions that, that emer- I mean, one of the interesting facts that emerges from that question is that we do have some very, very early recordings. Uh, the poet Robert Browning and uh, the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson made recordings in the 1880s and 90s. Very, very scratchy things, but you can you can hear their pronunciations that are quite distinctive. I think what may happen is that as the variety of English is heard and preserved, people may find themselves, if you like, imitating or miming other people's speech. Another way of looking at it will be to say we become progressively aware of the distance uh, from uh, from speech. I mean, for someone of my generation, um, I can listen to, for example, the speeches of Franklin Roosevelt, let's say, and they seem just barely familiar. But I know that nobody will ever talk like that again. And so there's something about the recording technology that I think preserves um, the speech of well-known individuals, but also makes us recognize how quickly our language is changing and um, how we can preserve it. So it's a fascinating question. And if we're around in 2525, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And to another on 591-7200. Good evening. Hello, how 
are you? Fine, sir. Go ahead. Good, good, good. Um, I was always um, kind of in a quandary about the word aunt and versus ant. Now, it seems to me that when you have a word like J-A-U-N-T and it's jaunt and F-L-A-U-N-T is flaunt, how in the world does A-U-N-T become ant? That's another good one, and that takes me back precisely to another one of those school memories. I always said ant and ant, and I was told to say aunt. And I think in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, no. and I was now you know this was, I mean you're exactly right that by the spelling we should be saying aunt. Yeah. And I think it was part of either street talk or part of laziness, where we said ant and ant. So it's a, you know, it's an interesting question. But that's general American, is it not? I was uh, never, uh, well, yeah. I always, it, it always seemed to me that I w aunt was more uh, common in the black neighborhoods or, you know, in African-American neighborhoods, and then aunt was said by whites. And I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know what your studies have shown you. Well, it's a good point. You know, I mean, I certainly, it's funny because my, um, my wife comes from a very old American aristocratic family, and she had some relatives uh, who I remember talking to in the 1980s who had some very rarefied, uh, almost Brahmin forms of speech. And they, I remember vividly, said aunt and auntie. And so they were very careful about that. They also said often quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting question, the way in which certain pronunciations are stratified out according to communities. And it would be an interesting study to see who really does say aunt and aunt. Are those relatives Bostonians? Uh, they were uh, Hudson Valley. Same thing, sort of. Mm -hmm. Patrician. That very, yeah. yes. Here's to the city of Boston, the home of the bean and the cod, where the lodges speak only to Cabots. And the Cabots speak only to God. To God. <laughs> and they... The question they, was, they did God answer back? They, they introduced their aunts to God. Exactly. And once again, our guest uh, has been and continues to be Seth Lehrer. We have been drawing from, but cannot possibly do full justice to his rich and wonderfully, uh, in, wonderfully informative new volume uh, titled Inventing English, A Portable History of the English Language. That is just published by Columbia University Press. And we go directly back to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, Dr. Rosenberg. Yes, sir. I'm uh, enjoying the show and enjoying uh, Mr. Lair's description of our language uh, and the dumbing down of English, if you will. But my question is, it seems that today the young folk are so intent on saying things are so fun. What is your position and Dr. Lair's position on that? And then I have another question about intransitive verbs. What do you mean, so fun? You mean that life is fun? Or? Oh, life is, uh, this is so fun. That's I so see. fun. Yes. When you and I were taught, uh, it is so much fun to go right. with my family. That, we blah, blah, that's right. Well, I think that's right. I think that the w there are certain words, as we've been talking about, like like, uh, like so, uh, that, you know, have... Um, that have been appropriated to change grammatical uses. I'm not condoning it, but I, it's an interesting way in which, you know, in which they're speaking. And certainly, look, the, you know, my particular, if you like, uh, my bet noir is the word awesome. I mean, the only time I'm going to use the word awesome is when the world comes to an end and a horrible fireball. That will be awesome. You know, my son has but a hamburger. But we won't know that. Well, but it will be awesome. You know, yes. my, my son has a hamburger, and how was the hamburger? He said, about it's the, awesome. How about, it's the, second, awesome. How about yes. the second coming of Jesus? That, that might be awesome. That, would that be awesome. might be awesome. Yeah. But something <laughs> is so fun. When you hear someone say, and quite astute and uh, 
-hmm. persons of knowledge are constantly throwing it out. Teachers, I have heard instructors. Sir, let me ask you a question. Yes, please. How old are you? Too old, 64. It's, a, it's an age thing. I, I'm older than you. I yes, I know, thank God. <laughs> but the fact is that the language changes underfoot, and the young are always the ones who are doing the changing. Yes, and I, I understand how Shakespeare is turning over in his grave. Uh, relating to that, mm -hmm. I was always taught that there are intransitive verbs that do not take an object. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is I who is calling. It is not, it is me. Mm -hmm. When someone says, it is them, or it is whatever. It should be, it is they. Yes, that's right. What did you do with the great Negro spiritual, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer? But why, and you hear so much of it on television today, both on radio, GN many times with the girls, etc., but certainly on the TV with allegedly qualified persons of, authority with news, etc. And I know Mr. H.B. Coltonborn would be turning over in his grave. Well, you know, the really interesting question here, if you put it in, uh, in its full form, is the difference between spoken speech and written. I think this is a difference of register. And no one would argue the issue of grammatical correctness. I mean, I think that's clear. But I think it is true that there are certain We are more grammatically latitudinarian well, in, sp in spoken English, so. are we not? Yes, I think that's right. I I've never used the word latitudinarian And before. now you've used <laughs> latitudinarian. I think that's uh, and pusillanimity. Well, did, you quite did you quite manage that with that? But I think it's probably fair to say that there are certain situations in which if I walked into a room and said, it is I, you know, it would be... Uh, precious. It would, it would be precious. Yeah. <laughs> no, it would be correct. It could be correct and precious. <laughs> Correctly precious. Sir, we, got it. we have to move. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Thank gentlemen. you, Thank you for an interesting contribution. Um, you, you do point out that uh, Shakespeare himself does things that we would consider ungrammatical, particularly the use of the double negative. There are double negatives. There are uh, oh, there are multiple comparatives. Unkindest, most unkindest. The most unkindest cut of all. Cut of That's all. what... Um, uh, Antony, as he points That's to right. all the different stab wounds that. Oh, there. Uh, are, look, you know, the kinds of things we think of as ungrammatical like that are really the uh, the inventions of 18th-century grammarians and teachers who want the language so? to become logical, and so they believe that two negatives created a positive. So you shouldn't use uh, multiple negatives. They were not cumulative. They canceled each other out. Here's a cute, uh, or at least an interesting, uh, email. Perhaps my favorite destroyer of the English language is Yogi Berra. Such quotes as. The future ain't what it used to be, or I never said most of the things I said, are deliberate misuse, yet are immediately understood. My favorite quote is, that guy can speak seven languages and can't get hit in any of them. That's brilliant. You see, Yogi is, is, is great for this because he, it's, the, the point is exactly right. We understand exactly what he's saying. My favorite Yogi Bearism is when he's talking about a restaurant, which, you know, he says it's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore. Yeah. Back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero, and you are next. Good evening. Are you there? Yes. Hi. Um, I was wondering why is it that us as Americans, seeing as how we are either directly related to or come here to America as immigrants, um, or descendants from Native Americans, have basically not retained our accents from, say, Poland or England, and created new ones, say, from like. Um, Minnesota or California. 
Oh, that's an interesting question. So in other words, why is it that um, an immigrant population doesn't retain its accent? Is that what you're asking? Yes, because um, I'm descended from the, my, my ancestors are Irish, but I don't have an Irish accent. I'm from the Chicagoland area, so I have a Midwestern accent, and I was wondering why that is. Well, I think it's several things. One is I think it's the age of the immigrant population. One of the things that I find fascinating uh, is the way in which it's really sort of between the ages of 13 and maybe 17 that an individual keeps or loses an accent. The famous example was, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, who had that very, very thick German accent, and his younger brother had no accent at all. And the real issue is, you know, what age did they come over and what age did they learn English? So one of the things that has an impact is the age of the immigrant population. The second is, you know, do we, do we learn to speak from our parents or do we learn to speak from our peers? And one of the questions is, in a broad community, uh, like many American communities, um, our children, certainly my son, will sound more like his friends than he'll sound like me. So I think over generations, you could argue that uh, we lose our ancestral or immigrant sound. But you do get pockets where people are rather isolated in this country. Uh, uh, Lawrence Welk, yes. remember him? Yes, I do. Spoke in a way that sounded like it was an, a, 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 an East European accent. That's right. But in fact, he was raised in it's either North or South Dakota. I That's right. Well, they Probably were, in a fairly isolated immigrant community. And my suspicion is, I mean, certainly when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago in the 70s, my sense was that there was a strong, there were strong pockets of Eastern European accents mm -hmm. in Chicago from people who were born in this country. And so, you know, I think that regional pockets of variation still exist, and they could be preserved in communities that were relatively close-knit. Let's work in one more quick call. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, it seems to me that coexisting with the dumbing down and the coarsening that are so often talked about is uh, is a technical ease, if you will. And, and our language draws <clears throat> from Saxon sources, which tend to be monosyllable or, or two-syllable words, and it also draws from Latin sources, Greek sources, sources that give us multisyllable words. And it seems that so many speakers will choose a multisyllable word when they could have chosen a shorter one that would have done just as well. Sometimes for the sake of pre precision, you need the multisyllable word. But what I want to ask you is whether the multisyllable words are tending to be intrinsic to our language, and so we can't help using them, or is the motivation to sound educated and sophisticated causing our language to become that way? Well, I think it's two things. I mean, I think you're exactly right in terms of origins, and I think that part of what's going on is the way in which certain kinds of social pressures or certain needs to speak in a certain kind of way uh, put more, maybe not just polysyllabic words, but if you like, hypercorrect words, words that may sound, if you like, highfalutin, but uh, uh, but but in many ways uh, are not. You know, my favorite is when you listen to our public figures speak, and you realize that so many politicians today have relatively little command of grammar, speak in ways that we would think of as ineloquent, and yet will use a highly technical vocabulary from economics or from political science, or the way in which they will come up with special terms for certain kinds of things, the way in which words like roadmap or benchmark have now taken on special meanings. But I think it's true. I think there is a real issue in the public uses of language to convince people of power, of intelligence, or of learning. Well, Al Gore's 
terrible and fateful lockbox. That's right. Of a, of a, pr a prior campaign. We're almost out of time. Can you imagine what direction the English language might take over coming centuries? I think that um, just a wild guess will be the following. I think there'll be much more Spanish in American English, not mm -hmm. just limited to regional areas. I think that that's going to inflect the pronunciation and the vocabulary. I think that uh, also the language of the internet, of email, and of text messaging is going to create even wider gaps between everyday spoken English and the English on the written page, or dare I even say, the screen. Hmm. Of course, there are the Englishes of other major countries. Indian English is uh, uh, is a vehicle of itself. That's right. Itself. And and what's fascinating is the way in which the novel in English today is at its most expressive and original coming out of people writing out of the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. Rushdie, Rao, uh, the Desais, that the individuals who are writing in English, but it is a uniquely uh, textured English. It's one that uh, works with a particular history of colonization and of, and of the country. And in so many ways, it's really revived the English novel, I think. Mm -hmm. Enough so as to uh, get Rushdie a knighthood which may in fact, which has in fact got him in trouble, they bring you should a fatwa on him for that reason. Well, I, I, fortunately for me, that, that is both a, uh, a pleasure and a pain that I will avoid. You're not going to be knighted, to be sure. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs>